Good morning. Sometimes you wonder why you've chosen a subject that's given on the list of subjects to preach. But actually, I suppose it's you get drawn to ones that God wants you to talk about, and I think that's what happened. And this morning's subject is, why does God allow suffering? It's a huge question because it could encompass an awful lot of things. And I've chosen to sort of focus on the the main thing, which is the answer to the question. There's an awful lot of other stuff that I could have covered that we just don't have time for. It would, you need another, well, a whole talk, ministry session, worship session, completely separately. So I hope this um, fulfills your expectations this morning. Um, when I first looked at this, I have a book, I, probably many of you have read it, but um, C.S. Lewis has written a book called The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the stories about Narnia. And I read that through before I even started with this. You'll be glad to know I have not, I'm not coming out with everything that he comes out with, because some of the time it sort of goes over here. Um, but he says in his introduction that Christianity, in fact, creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. So in many ways, we only ask the question, why does God allow suffering? Because we have a hint, at least, that God is loving and compassionate. So why does he allow suffering? But I think it's often a question that is asked by people who have not met with the living Lord yet. But that doesn't mean to say it goes away once they have. And it's a good thing to have in your mind an answer for those people who come to you and say, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering. When we were worshipping, I was thinking, actually, I think perhaps we ought to ask Joel to speak this morning because... All those songs that we sang really covered a lot of our experience, don't they, around suffering. And one of the things that I want to start with this morning is rather than address that question directly, is the, the fact that God is a loving and a gracious and a compassionate God. Because unless we believe that, we do get doubts and all sorts coming in when we ask the question, why does God allow suffering? Right at the beginning of the Bible, we're told that God created the world and it was good. Right in Genesis, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Later on in that same book, we hear that conversation that Abraham has with God. Do you remember this, this, the conversation over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says he will destroy those cities. And Abraham asserts his belief that God will do what is right. Genesis 18 verse 25 says, Far be it from, from you to kill the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I, there are a lot of Bible verses that give us an insight into the world as God wants it to be. And among my favourites, I suppose my favourite is Isaiah 65. And here Isaiah prophesies, 
a word from God. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. That became a very important passage to me and a friend of mine when she lost her baby at a few days old. I worked with her a little bit or went to see her quite a bit because I was working in the hospital where she had the baby. Um, but she also belonged to a, a, a church, not my church, but another church. And I was so sad because the pastor said to her, it was God's will that your baby died. And I, I raged against that. I said, no, no, never in a million years would God will your baby to die and cause you so much suffering. And I think this passage underlines that. Never again will there be an infant that will live but a few days. That passage also goes on as a little bit at the end that talks about even the animal kingdom will see no pain and suffering. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Can't quite imagine that. But God says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. That is God's intention. That's what he wants. Right at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John writes down what he hears from God, and it is very similar. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When Jesus came to earth, he came to demonstrate what that kingdom is like. All his actions and his ministry and uh, how he preached revealed God's heart for the people he had created. We read in Matthew, great crowds came to him bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. I think it's really important to have those passages in the back of our mind when we start to question, why does God let suffering happen? Because we need to know what God's heart is for us to start with. I don't believe it's God who makes us suffer. He doesn't send it or give it. These passages from the Bible impress on us that God is indeed loving and compassionate and wants good for us. And there's lots of other passages, and we've sung 
reflections of those this morning, of how God is kind and good to us. The Psalms are full of them. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The Psalms are full of the, life's so awful, Lord, but you are wonderful. Why, why is it like this? I can't understand. And they're a wonderful resource to go to when you're in a position where you can't just see the way out. And in the New Testament, even after Jesus has come and has brought the kingdom and given us salvation, throughout that rest of the New Testament, we see this contradiction of healing coming and the disciples, like Jesus, going around and healing many people through the power of the Holy Spirit. They bring the hope of the good news of the kingdom about forgiveness, that we can receive forgiveness, that we can be received by God through Jesus. And at the same time, they talk about the trouble and persecution that people are going through. I read uh, Peter's first letter. And right at the beginning, he's got these wonderful words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though <laughs> now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's a conflict, isn't there? When we read, read the passages that I read earlier, Isaiah and Revelation, and again in um, Matthew's um, Gospel, there's quite clearly the conflict between the kingdom of heaven, where everything should be perfect and good, and lots of suffering. Revelation talks of a lot of suffering. Jesus talks about the end times before he comes again, of a world of disaster and famine and unequal distress. Why does it have to be that way? Well, God could have made us automatons, only able to do exactly what he says and be, you know, do everything as he willed it all the time. He could equally always put right what we do wrong in order to prevent any sort of underlying suffering but all of that would remove what he wanted to give us in the first place which was a free will he wanted us to choose to love and worship him to choose for our beloved creator and ruler he's a loving God and he wanted people who chose that love for him they weren't forced to love him. Wouldn't be love, would it? He wanted a relationship with his created people, not as slaves, but as friends. In John 15, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he explains how he no longer calls them servants, but friends, 
because they wanted to do what he commanded. He taught them what pleased God and they in turn loved him and wanted to please and obey him. And that's the basis on which our Father God wants a relationship with us. But free will to choose to love God gives us other options as well. And with options and choices come mistakes. And whether you take it as an, a literal story, which I know some people do, or whether you take it as a, a word picture of uh, what happened to humanity not long after they were created, and the Adam and Eve story is our story. They listened to the voice of Satan and their own temptation, their desires within their own hearts, and they doubted God. They forgot he was the one to be trusted, and they decided to test his instructions. The result of that, which we read of in Genesis, was eviction from the perfect world that God had created. For them, instead, the world became a place that didn't respond readily to cultivation. Where daily food had to be worked for at cost. It became a place where even bearing offspring created pain. In the generation after Adam and Eve, Cain murders his brother Abel. That first seemingly innocuous, we'll do what we want, thank you very much, God, leads to the depth humanity can fall to. One man murdering his brother in cold blood. No, no good reason that we can work out, really. And suffering and trouble in the world are a result of the disobedience of mankind. Much of the Old Testament is a record of God's own people wavering backwards and forwards between loving God and wanting to please him and being very sorry for everything they'd done wrong. And then they gradually, oh, we'll do it our own way. Given the ability to choose, mankind often chooses unwisely and in disobedience reaps the consequences of those bad choices. There is also another player he was there right at the beginning. And Satan has a hand in the resulting suffering. And he exploits our human weaknesses and very often makes something worse out of what started as bad. <laughs> so at one level, the deepest level, suffering is all our fault. But I want to be clear that I'm not of the opinion, which might have been the case perhaps in ages past, may still be for pe some people today, that if we suffer, it's because we've done something wrong. Specifically us have, have done something to uh, warrant it. That can happen, but I think we all know that. We know when if something goes wrong and it has a direct consequence of, of something, we know we're to blame. and we, we can see that quite easily. Certain activities result in uh, bad consequences for us. But there's no way that one individual's suffering necessarily has to do every time with their own specific behaviour. I put, read the book of Job. I could have preached on the book of Job, really, couldn't I? I could have spoken about that. 
But that whole story is poor Job tussling with this question of why he is going through some horrendous suffering. First, he loses everything. Then he's attacked himself and ends up ill and um, on his own. And he sits there miserable, wondering why he is where he is. And it isn't because he has disobeyed God, though his friends might come along and say, you must have done something to, to warrant this. That wasn't the case. We have the benefit in the story of hearing God and Satan have a little conversation and God saying, doesn't matter what you throw at him, that man's going to stay faithful to me. Job doesn't hear that. All he hears at the end of the story is that God is God, God's thoughts are higher than his, and God is still God. Job wasn't a perfect man, but he didn't deserve what he got. And Jesus himself uh, talks about it in the, with his disciples. There's that occasion where the man, he healed the man who was born blind. And his disciples are quite convinced that the man must have done something wrong. Rabbi, who sinned? This man? Or his parents, maybe, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That particular occasion, that happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And it might not be something that we take on board for ourselves once we believe in the love of the Lord Jesus and we understand how our sins are forgiven. We just understand humanly that our bad consequences happen from sin, but that actually um, our suffering is not necessarily down to us anything specific we've done. But a lot of people who don't believe often think, I must have done something very bad to be, and this is a punishment. That's, that's not what God does. Most suffering is not the direct result of our own foolishness and weakness specifically. It is the result of the state of mankind without God. And in many ways, our rage against suffering and our determination to do something about it and our desire to see people well and full of life and able to enjoy life is that we, we just long to be back in paradise we want to be back in heaven we want to be in the kingdom as God intended it whether we know God or not we want there to be an Eden we want there to be a utopia perhaps As Christians, we want to see his creation, God's creation, living in harmony with him. It's like mankind retains like a soul memory of what heaven is like. It's not perfect, but we have, a, we have an inkling. It's not supposed to be like this. And very often people lay the blame for it at God's door instead of our own. But without God's intervention, however much we may try, there's no way back to the kingdom of God. That place of right relationship with the creator, the place where the kingdom of God is fully felt. Even our concept of what is perfect and just and right and good is nowhere near what God's is. Jesus said only God is good. We can't get back there under our own steam, even when we can see that there are things in the world that are wrong. 
and we might work our socks off to make it a better place. We, we can't do it on our own. Jesus was and is God's only plan to enable us, his creation, to return to the kingdom. Jesus talks about how what he was doing here on earth as being the kingdom come amongst people. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And it's only through relying on Jesus that we can return to the kingdom God created us to be part of. When we begin to rely on Jesus for life, we do enter into that kingdom. And I think I've got a slide that shows a sort of picture of what life is like now. There's the kingdom of God, which we have entered into. We are part of the kingdom of God when we trust in Jesus. But the world still exists, and we're also still part of that. A world of imperfect human beings, both redeemed and unredeemed. All of us weak, sometimes ignorant, and influenced by the forces of our own flawed thinking and by the evil one himself at times. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world overlap, and we live in the bit in the middle. When I looked at this, and I, I, one of my things that I had in my mind was to emphasize how good God is and how, how he wants things to be. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that we're part of what he's doing to bring the kingdom to more people. We still live in the world, although we're in the kingdom, at any rate until Jesus comes again, and that's a subject for another talk. But it's not an excuse to wait until he comes for the kingdom to come to other people. We who have received God's grace and a taste of the greatness of his love, we have a vision of the restored kingdom. When we have even that partial experience of God's kingdom, we have a role in the building of it here on earth. And we are to draw others into it. Those, that circle in the middle has got to get bigger. We have a role to work for justice and for the reduction of pain and suffering and in, in an imperfect, fallen and far from good world. We're to pray and to act against the bad stuff. We're to pray for miracles, and we've seen some. That is God's activity against the worldly natural order of things. It's a taste of what the kingdom is like. And there's a battle to be fought for this kingdom until the time God chooses to fill, fulfill his promises. Isn't it what they say when they... People go to war. It's a battle for hearts and minds. And that is it. We're having a battle against minds who still want to do things their own way. Ours included sometimes. We're also in a battle with an evil force who would exploit our free will for his own ends, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. He's always working to corrupt God's creation. Paul writes in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Also a subject for another talk. <laughs> Jesus brought this good news of the kingdom of God and we are kingdom people and we also bring this good news. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what is done has been done through God. That now and not yet kingdom, um, I think the parable that Jesus um, tells about the weeds in the wheat field is a really good picture of what is going on, where we are and what's happening in the world. The farmer goes out and he sows his wheat and his servants come back a bit later and say, there's all these weeds coming up, shall we pull them out? And the farmer says, no, 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 don't pull them out. You'll pull the wheat out as well. Leave the weeds to grow alongside the wheat. But when we come to the harvest, we'll separate them up and we'll burn the weeds and the wheat will be saved. And that's where we are. There is wheat and weeds growing up together. And they are growing up together. The more we see of the kingdom of God, the more we see the kingdom of God grow, the more we will also see evil trying to come up as well. So it's no wonder that there is an increase in what we see of wars and, and suffering around because there are weeds out there. Where there is suffering, though, as wheat in the field, we are to pray for healing and wholeness. Where there is condemnation, we are to reveal forgiveness and salvation, spreading the good news of the gospel. Where evil and suffering and bad stuff proliferates we are to reproduce goodness and grace and hope one example of this was I was at the open doors persecuted church conference last month and um, there was a an open doors leader speaking from Syria and he talked about the number of um, Muslim background believers that had grown up people who had been following Islam and despite everything that was going on in Syria, more and more of them are coming to know the Lord, often through dreams and visions of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gives them directly. There aren't that many Christians without them. There's not many left. They've, a lot of them have left because of the, the terrible uh, conditions out there. But there's an increasing number of um, Muslims coming to know the Lord. And this guy said, out of suffering, hope shines and many come to know the Lord. On the slides there, I've got a copy of the Lord's Prayer and I've wanted us to pray it this morning. I've put it on here because we don't pray it very often and there might be some of you who haven't prayed it for a long time and I've put up a modern version of it. And I thought we would just pray this uh, as I come to the end of what I'm saying. 
because this, this is a pattern for prayer. We don't have to pray this every day, but it gives us a basis, like a mnemonic, of what Jesus suggests we pray about and how we pray. And I particularly love the part in there where we pray for the kingdom to come. So let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So just in summary, we do have a loving, compassionate, just, righteous God who desires to recreate his kingdom populated with his people. And because God desired us to choose to love him rather than be made to, suffering ultimately arises out of our free choice to distrust and disobey God's way. Suffering is therefore part of the way of the world, not necessarily the result of our individual sin. Jesus came to restore us to the kingdom. And as kingdom people, we are like Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit to bring the kingdom into the world. If you know the story, at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the last film of the, about the Lord of the Rings, or if you've read the book, um, the city is being taken by um, the baddies from Mordor. And uh, Gandalf is caught in the city with one of the hobbits who's very, very frightened that he's about to die. And he says, Gandalf, I didn't think the end would be like this. And Gandalf says, end? No, this isn't the end. Beyond, there's a far green country with white shores and an, another adventure. And Pippin, the hobbit, is looking at him with wonder in his face that there could be anything great to go on to. And is reassured, as Gandalf describes, the wonderful future, the hope that there is. And that's what we have when we're talking to other people and, and they're in suffering. And maybe there isn't anything we can do about it directly. But there is more to life. And we know about it. We have something to tell them. <laughs>